Today, as we uh, move through our study of, of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament that we're in now, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different even within this series. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and do one more message on Matthew, and I'll tell you the, the rationale for that, and that is um, a number of people uh, last week after the message on Matthew was over, they said, you talked about all these five discourses that Jesus did, but you didn't, you didn't really give us the content in those discourses. And um, as I thought about that and talked it over with a few other people, um, I realized I think it's going to be valuable for me to go back and I'm going to this time just review just the five discourses uh, on Matthew. Um, you're going to see a little bit more why I feel like that is, that is really important and critical for us this, this week. But uh, next week, we're going to continue in Mark and just do one message in Mark, one in Luke, one in John, and continue to move. But this week, for a particular reason, I feel like it's important for us to go back and just focus on the five discourses. Okay, so that's, that's where we're headed. Um, but I also want to mention this. If you're ever wondering how to describe Fellowship Bible Church, and if we're different in, in any way, the, the, the one key thing I would say that makes fellowship different is, is we are an equipping church, not an event church. We're not about having a bunch of events, getting people together, counting them, and then go plan the next event. That's just not our, it's not our DNA. Our DNA is we're wanting to equip you to be a reproducing disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and this, our ministry is to equip you. And so that's one of the reasons I'm going to do what I'm going to do here at the very first of the, of, of the message. And that is, um, I'm going to introduce you to a resource, now that we're into the New Testament, a resource that's available online in addition to the Bible Project, which I still highly recommend. Watch all the videos on the Bible Project. They're really excellent. They're wonderfully done. They're super informative. They're trustworthy. Um, but there's another resource that's online that I want to introduce you to that you can utilize now that we're in the New Testament. Um, and it's at a website called Bible.org. If you go to Bible.org, uh, what you're going to find is kind of the Dallas Seminary faculty and alumni website. It's, it's where um, a, lot of, a lot of Dallas Seminary graduates, which is where I went to seminary, um, and faculty members have a lot of their material. It's there, okay? If you go to Bible.org and you put in that search box, Dan Wallace Introductions, um, what you're going to find is some material by... Uh, preeminent New Testament scholar. His name is Dan Wallace. He, um, he specializes in New Testament manuscripts and has done a lot of great work. Um, he's a, an expert in Greek grammar uh, and uh, just done, he's, he's a great New Testament scholar. But if you, if you Google or if you put in the search box at Bible.org, Dan Wallace Introductions, what you're going to find is this is going to come up for you and it's going to say New Testament Introductions and Outlines. Um, and if you click on that, what you'll get is every single book in the New Testament with a link to the material there, but you can also download it as a Word document for every New Testament book, and it's Dan Wallace's um, introduction outline to, to every New Testament book. Um, and what every one of them has is this. Um, it's going to give an introduction where he talks about the author of the book, who, like who's Matthew, who wrote it, and who do scholars say Matthew is, and maybe there's some controversy. And honestly, I'm going to tell you, that's probably the, the least interesting section because he spends a lot of time dealing with authorship in some ways that maybe wouldn't interest you as much, but maybe it would. But then he gets into some things that are super, super helpful that you're not going to find anywhere else. He's going to deal with the dating of the book. When was it written? Its destination? Who were the original audience of the book? And the occasion and the purpose. What, what occasioned the book? What what made them say, okay, we need to write this book now, and what was the purpose for writing it, 
And then he's going to give you the theme. And in fact, one of the things I've been doing is, um, and will continue to do, is give you Dan Wallace's themes for every one of these books. He does a great job in kind of distilling it into a theme. Then he's going to give you the argument of the book. And here's what that is. It, it is a paragraph by paragraph talking you through the book. Um, it's not a commentary, but it's kind of the precursor to a commentary. It's a, it's a, it's a, a paragraph where he narrates himself through every section of the book. And then he ends it with a very detailed outline. These resources are, are huge. Um, if, if you're looking for more, it's free. It's online. I've just go to Bible.org, Dan Wallace Introductions, pull these things up, and you can look at them online. You can, you know, download them as Word documents. They're super, super helpful and very, very orienting to that. So take advantage of that if you're doing a deeper study or you want a little bit, a little bit more. Um, I also have, um, related to today's message, some information out of the Connection Center, it's posted online, um, an article on discipleship by Joey Dodson, uh, where he talks about the nature of discipleship in the first century, what disciples were like, and how Jesus um, is a teacher uh, modeling discipleship for his, for his um, students. There's an, an article, and this is really kind of the foundation of what I'm doing this morning. Uh, Michael Wilkins uh, has a commentary, a big, huge, thick commentary on Matthew. But one of the things he does is he summarizes the discourses that I'm going to talk about today. Um, and, and I'm going to quote a lot of Michael Wilkins in this. If you want the summary of these five discourses, uh, you'll find it that handout out of the Connection Center. It's also posted online. And the last discourse, which is called the Olivet Discourse, um, is the most complicated, maybe the most complicated passage in all of Scripture. It is very, very complicated to unravel what all is going on in the Olivet Discourse. So I have an article there by Daryl Bach on the Olivet Discourse to try to straighten it out for you, because I, I can't straighten it. Nobody can straighten it out. They, you can just kind of say, here's maybe what's going on and just some options for it. And so he does that in that article, because I, I, I really just, I won't have time today to do anything than, other just than introduce you to the big theme of that. So that is, uh, that is resources that are available for you. We're trying to equip you for you to spend time in the Bible yourself and for you to engage in Bible study. Um, again, Matthew is presenting his particular arrangement of the life of Christ. I have some of these cards out at the Connection Center. I think there are still some of them there. Uh, but what they do is they summarize the life of Christ. And, and we're going to do this again. So I'm going to go ahead and have you stand up. I learned my lesson first hour. Um, go ahead, stand up. I, I learned my lesson first hour. I need to review just a little bit and give you some practice here. Um, but what, what we're doing here is we're putting the life of Christ together in the whole picture, okay? Um, Christ lived probably about 36 years. The New Testament only covers 57 days of that, Okay. And, and so what we're going to do and what we're going to do as we move through the Gospels is just remind ourselves, here's the life of Christ. But what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do is they are selectively taking pieces of this big picture and they're arranging it in a way to accomplish the particular purpose that they have. Okay, so it's good for us to see the big picture. And so I'm going to remind you of that. We have three sections in Christ's life, his preparation for ministry, the three years of his ministry, and then the last week of his life um, in the preparation for that. So we're going to do that three sections at a time, then we'll put it all together. Okay, um, if you'll remember, we're going to take a, a baby, hold a baby in your arms, and uh, we're going to talk about his birth, his baptism, temptation. You need to be just sultry. As sultry as maybe wiggle your hips a little when, you, when you're, you're tempting, okay? Temptation. Some of you stop wiggling your hips. That's not good. Okay. Um, temptation, 
And then after that, we're going to just teach, okay? So let's put all those, those four together with your hands and your mouth, okay? One, two, three. Ba- birth, <laughs> baptism, temptation, teaching. Then in Christ's life, there are three uh, years of his ministry. The first year is obscurity, and then there's a year of popularity, and then there's a year of opposition. Pause now. This year of opposition, it's the chosen season four. Um, we've already seen the year he kind of enters on the scene. Nobody really knows who he is. There's a year of him obscurity. And then there's a year where he becomes popular. He's teaching Sermon on the Mount and feeding 5,000. He's really popular. But then in the chosen, it's season four, this time of opposition. Okay, so we're going to do that. And then we remember during those three years, he's training his disciples. Okay, so let's do the three years of Christ's ministry. There is obscurity, popularity, opposition, and training. The last week of his life um, is the time when he arrives in Jerusalem and there is a trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Okay, put those together. Okay, going to trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Let's do it all together with your hands and your mouth. Okay, one, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching, obscurity, popularity, opposition, training, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Great, you can sit down. Um, Now, the question is, why does Matthew take what we know is the big picture? Why does Matthew take what he does out of that and arrange it the way that he arranges it? And one of the things that he is doing is he's presenting Moses or Jesus as a new Moses. Um, just like Moses, Jesus has an obscure birth. They attempt to kill him as a baby. There's divine deliverance for both of them. They deliver people from slavery. They bring new divine teaching. They're seen in glory. Moses' face shines for Jesus. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. And they both initiate a new covenant. And so Matthew, in a very Jewish way, is saying, Moses introduced this new thing that happened when he brought the law and that teaching and this new covenant. Jesus is the new Moses who's bringing that. And that's what what Matthew is doing. He's taking that life of Christ and he's selecting some things to put it all together. And in particular, he's showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. He's the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, but he's bringing salvation to everybody, inaugurating a kingdom and inviting us to tell people about that new form of the kingdom, this new teaching that he's got. My summary out on a chart at the Connection Center says this, Matthew presented selected events from Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and teaching, stressing the kingdom program of God with an emphasis on Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament in order to assure Jewish believers and non-believers that God's kingdom program, this whole Old Testament program that was promised, had not been done away with, but had entered a new phase, the church age, which is inaugurated by Jesus so that disciples, both Jews and Gentiles, would live according to the teachings of Jesus as recorded by Matthew in five key sermons, which form a new Torah for the subjects of the king. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus on those five key messages, the new Torah messages. There's five books that Moses wrote, and there's five main messages that Jesus is going to deliver. Here they are. The whole book is structured around these five huge discourses. Now, I'm going to tie this together in the big picture by going to the end. If you go to the end of the book, you get the Great Commission. There Jesus says, um, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Moses had authority, but it was the authority of revelation from God. Jesus has his own authority. 
And what he says to them with that authority, the new Moses authority, he says, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The key imperative in that, the only imperative, everything else is a participle, an I-N-G word. Um, the key imperative there is make disciples. Get people to, to learn and live like Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. Now, the participles of attendant circumstance that go along with that is do this as you're going, wherever you're going. As you go, make disciples. And then there's two parts that follow. Baptizing, which is the initiation. It's the start of the process. It's the start of kind of here's a first step to say, I'm in. I'm part of this new, this new movement of Jesus. And then he says, teaching them, and in particular, it's teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Now, the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing today is all that he commanded is the book of Matthew. Um, it basically works like this. If you, um, let me go back one. Um, if, you, if you say, okay, we've got to teach, what do we have to teach? It's it's what Jesus taught in those five discourses. That's why in the, in the first few hundred years, two or three hundred years, Matthew was far and away the most popular book because Matthew presented, here's what you're supposed to teach that Jesus taught us. Um, Michael Wilkins, whose articles are out there, um, he says it this way. Oh, I'm going to build the slide again. The concluding element of the Great Commission, in which Jesus states that new disciples are to be taught to obey everything I commanded you, gives a hint to one overall purpose for this gospel. Matthew records five of Jesus' major discourses, all of which are addressed primarily to Jesus' disciples. And he signals the conclusion of each with the recurring identical formula, when Jesus had finished. He, he makes it clear, this is a teaching, this is a teaching. Five times he does that. These discourses provide a holistic presentation on the kind of discipleship that was to be taught to disciples as the basis for full-orbed obedience to Christ and became the basis for Christian instruction within the church. These discourses reveal that Jesus' disciples will be characterized by what they are taught to follow in these directives. Here's how it works. If you go to the Great Commission at the end, make disciples of all nations, um, wherever you're going, bring them into the family, and then teach them to observe what I commanded. And what I commanded is in these five discourses. And so what I'm going to try to do today is summarize what is in those five discourses and put that together for you in one message. I'm going to bring it all together um, at the end. The first discourse is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the foundational teaching of the, te of the kingdom. And what it basically says is the kingdom values are different. Now, they're very different and they're impossible to reach because only Jesus could reach them. But what he says is, there's coming a time when we will live this way until we live that way, when sin and Satan and, and the flesh and the world are all done away with, until then, still strive to live that way. So there's a here and now aspect as we try to live like Jesus, but then there's a time when we are going to live like Jesus, which explains why the standard is actually impossible. It is an impossible standard that we can't live in the here and now. We will live it then and there. Until we get then and there, really strive to live this way. Um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because of this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So he's teaching his disciples on the mountainside. 
Um, here's how it goes. It kind of gives you the setting. Then he talks about what are the subjects of the kingdom like? What do they look like? Then he talks about the values, and then he talks about how you get there. Here's how he starts. We've already read it this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Those who are meek, they'll inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. Those who are merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Those who are pure in heart, they'll see God. Those who are peacemakers, they'll be called the children of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of God. Um, what he's basically doing here is he's saying all the values of the world are not the values of the kingdom. The, the values of the kingdom are all about power and influence and success, or the values of the world. The values of the kingdom are humility and meekness. Um, what he introduces in these foundational principles is the upside-down kingdom. Our kingdom is different than the world. We need to live with a different set of values. Um, he goes on and he says things like this. You've heard that it was said, this is this contrast, you, this is what everybody else says. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteousness, uh, on the unrighteous. The unbelievers, they love their friends, they hate their enemies. I'm telling you, love everybody, because God loves everybody. He goes on, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, like Matthew, the author of this book, aren't they doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our values are different than the values of the world. They are a higher set of values. In fact, it's perfection. Throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about a lot of things um, that are really critical, but they are convicting. He talks about us being salt and light in the world, how he fulfills the law. He talks about how anger is like murder. He talks about reconciliation, adultery and lust, divorce and remarriage, keeping your word, doing what you say you're going to do, forgiving others, loving your enemy, generosity. By the way, anybody want me to quit right now? <laughs> he goes on and talks about hypocritical prayer, proper prayer, secret fasting rather than making a public display of your fasting, how you should get your priorities straight, about worry and trust. We read about that today, about not judging others, about persistence in prayer, the high cost of following him, true and false prophets, and foolish priorities of whether you're building your house on sand, things that won't last, or are you building your life on the rock? Are you building your life on the foundation of the gospel? Um, see if I can make this work again here. We got it? There we go. That was one of the uh, parks in the five, the mighty five in Utah. That's what you were seeing there for a second. Um, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, and as he brings this sermon to a conclusion, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, um, they knew the Bible well, but they were using the Bible to make themselves look good and to have influence. Jesus just taught with authority of he knew exactly what this meant, and it was convicting for the people. Michael Wilkins says this, this kind of discipleship involves an inside-out transformation into the righteousness of the kingdom. 
The ultimate example of this righteousness is Jesus himself, who has come to fulfill the Old Testament revelation of God's will for his people, so that Jesus' disciples can pursue clearly the goal to be perfectly, to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. How can you be perfect like God in heaven? Well, you look like Jesus on earth. He raises the standard. Kingdom life, therefore, addresses all aspects of what discipleship to Jesus means during this age, including ethical, religious, marital, emotional, and economic dimensions. If you're going to live as part of this kingdom, his first teaching says it affects every area of your life. And the standard is higher than the standard of the world, and the standard is higher than religious people. The next thing that Jesus does is he sends his 12 disciples out on a mission. And this is kind of the the ministry that we're supposed to be in. He sends them out. He's sending us out. And what he's saying is just like me, you're going to suffer as you serve, but God is going to bring the increase. God's going to to take care of the results. So just stay on mission and let, let God sort it all out. These 12, after he selects them, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go to the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near because the kingdom is there, or the king is there. Uh, The the kingdom is near, not because it's going to happen right then, but the kingdom is near because the king is present. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus sends them on a mission, and he limits them. Go to Israel. Only go to the, to the Israelites because what's going on here is, is Christ is coming to say, I fulfilled the Old Testament and you Jews should be expecting this, but they reject him. Um, it's in chapter 12 that there's kind of this official rejection of Jesus. Um, it, it goes on to say this, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. By the way, I mean, how would it be if we, you know, started mission trips this way? Um, okay, we're sending you to the Czech Republic. We're going to Nicaragua. Um, you're headed off on a mission trip. And you know what's going to happen is you're going to be persecuted. They're going to beat you. Okay, so have a pancake and get beaten. Uh, that's, you know, I mean, we wouldn't do this. But Jesus does that because he wants to be very honest with them. And he's telling them this. There's going to be opposition, but your success is going to come through what Jesus and what the Holy Spirit brings about. And don't worry about that. There's opposition. Yes, it's going to be there. You're going to be persecuted. If you live a higher standard than the world, they're not going to like you. And if you take a message of Jesus is the solution, not your own efforts and performance, they're going to persecute you. But live that way. Take the message out there. Stay on mission, and God will bring the success. Wilkins says this, like Jesus, his disciples can expect opposition and persecution from Jews and Gentiles, from the religious and political world, as well as from one's own closest family and companions. Yet they need not fear because the spirit will provide power and guidance and the father will exercise sovereign care and control. God's in control as you live on on mission. But don't be surprised by persecution and opposition. Don't be surprised if people don't like the way you're living or like the message you have. The centrality of the presence of Jesus in the disciples' life is the most vital characteristic of the mission, so that the disciples increasingly grow to be like the master. He's saying, I'm there with you all along. He's going to reiterate that in the Great Commission. I'm with you always. I'm with you through the persecution. Just stay on mission.
The next section we have is really um, this pivotal thing that happens in Matthew because the Jews reject Jesus in chapter 12. That's clearly what's going on is the, the Jews finally just say, he's not our Messiah, we're going to kill him. So in Matthew chapter 13, what Jesus does is he says, that's fine. God's not finished with his program. He's just going to move it forward in a little bit different way. And he, and he introduces kind of the church age. There's going to be still opposition but the, the kingdom is going to expand through the church. It'll be slow at first, then it'll grow fast, and then it's going to go around the world. It's going to spread like yeast through dough. It's going to go everywhere, but we're responsible to take the message along the way. He told them many things in parables, saying, here's his first parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. And they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, thirty of what was sown. Here's what he's saying. Um, the, the gospel's going to be sown, and it's going to be received in very different ways. Some people will receive it readily, some people not. Some people won't receive it at all. It's going to be received in a lot of different ways. That's not your worry. God's going to sort all of that out. Uh, in, in these parables of the kingdom, he's going to talk about the soils, levels of different reception. Uh, then he's going to tell the reason for the parables. He's going to explain the parable of the soils. Then he's going to say, um, there's, it's, it's like sowing seed among weeds. There's opposition, and, and the evidence is going to be at the end where you see Oh, clearly, oh, those are the weeds and those are not. He's going to talk about the parable of the mustard seed, that the, the kingdom's going to grow from something small to something big. It's the parable of the yeast. It's going to spread throughout the entire world. Then he talks about the reason he's doing this again. Then he's going to explain the weeds. He's going to talk about the, the, the pearl of great price, that the, the kingdom and its values and being a part of it has great value. He's going to talk about the parable of the net. God's the final judge. Cast the net, bring in all the fish, let God sort them out. It's not our job to sort them out. You're in, you're out. I don't like you. you. You're not living the right way. No, take the gospel and bring as many people in as you can, and in the end, God will sort them out. And then at the end, he says, um, the believing teachers of the law, those who, who, who understood the Old Testament and now believe, they've got this double blessing. They understand the old and the new. It's a great message. And what he's saying is this. There's various receptions to this mission I'm sending you out on. It's going to grow slow but it's in God's hands. Just be, just be faithful. Just be faithful. God's going to sort it all out in the end. Michael Wilkins says it this way. The parabolic uh, disclosure develops what it means to be clandestine kingdom disciples. <laughs> How do you live in a world that doesn't accept you? You can't live by the values of the world. You have to be subversive in getting the message out there. So the parabolic discourse reveals what it means for Jesus' disciples to live as kingdom subjects in a world that has not yet experienced the full consummated kingdom of God. That's yet to come. However, Jesus' disciples will act demonstratively different from others in this world through an inside-out transformation. Our lives are transformed as we're on this mission. There's another section that Jesus pulls his disciples away and he says, okay, you're going to be in mission, on mission out there. But how do you live in community? How do you take care of one another? Uh, there's accountability and forgiveness in this kingdom. He talks about your relationships here inside the community that are characterized by humility, honesty, and grace. Uh, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How do we get power? It's, it's like, 
you did, did you not understand this thing about, you know, it's not about um, who's on top. God's going to sort it all out. Just be faithful. Um, and so he called a little child to him in response to who's the greatest. He calls a little child to him, placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Be humble like a child. This morning, when Addie got baptized, there's a child there who just humbly, she's not seeking power, she's not seeking anything. Before the baptism, she's down on the front row and she's singing the songs. She's singing with all of her heart. It's just, there's just a humility and an honesty to it. She wasn't showing off. I could, I mean, I looked, she was just singing. It was coming from, there's just something pure about what that is. That's what this says to us. Is, is, is come at, at your community in humility, not seeking power. Remember, this is in response to who's going to be the greatest. In the community, don't worry about who's going to be the greatest. Be it like a child. Be a servant. He goes on and he says, if your brother or sister sins, this is where, yeah, be humble, but let's be serious about sin. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two brothers along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, this is a harsh passage, but it's basically telling us this. Be serious about sin. Now, it doesn't tell us to just go pointing out everybody's sin in public. If somebody's sinned, and particularly maybe if they've sinned against you, they've damaged people, go and talk to them about that. And if they won't pay attention, take somebody else. Um, and it may escalate to bigger, bigger situations. We've practiced this in my 24 years here at the church. There have been a number of times that we've gone through this entire process um, where we brought it to the elders and, 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 and it has escalated because the person would not respond. And the point is not how quickly can we get them out? The question is, gosh, we want them to respond and repent. Now, this gives me a chance to talk about one of my favorite verses taken out of context. It's from this passage. Remember, this passage is about church discipline and removing someone from fellowship. Okay? The very next verses say this. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you free on earth, you will have, have been freed in heaven. He's basically saying, when you get together to do this, God's with you. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with you. This verse is in the context of church discipline. So if you're ever with a group of people and the Christians say, hey, where two or three are gathered, he's here with us. And let's agree on this. You better be, you may be getting ready to be kicked out because <laughs> um, the context of this is church discipline. Now, do I believe that, you know, people should pray in groups and all that? Yes, I do. I'm just telling you this, this verse that says two or three agreeing on things, you can't make that happen. But in church discipline, do it in community. Do this in a, in a very significant way. What he talks about in living on community is have the humility of a child. Be concerned for others, seek the loss, deal with sin, and practice forgiveness. Be free in offering forgiveness. That's what he's telling them. It's humility, honesty, and grace. That's the, out there, live on mission. Expect opposition, and God's going to be the one who advances it. In here, let's live with humility and honesty and grace. 
Michael Wilkins says it this way, they, this discourse clarifies how discipleship to Jesus is expressed through a church that is characterized, he uses more words than I, humility, responsibility, purity, accountability, dis- discipline, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. This fourth discourse is addressed to the insiders. It's how we take care of each other. The final discourse is called the Olivet Discourse. Again, it's very complicated. It talks about the consummation of, of Christ coming back. And what he's going to tell us is no one knows, so just be ready. Um, this passage has one of those features that I talked about when I talked about the prophets. When the prophets predict things, there's often a skipping of kind of a little bit of a fulfillment and another fulfillment. Jesus does that in the Olivet Discourse. He's clearly talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD, but he's also clearly, when the, the temple is destroyed, but he's also talking about things that are going to happen at the end of the age. That's how this whole thing is set up. Jesus left the temple, was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called attention to the building. Look how wonderful this temple is. Do you see all these things, he asked them? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That happens in 70 AD when the the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and, and burned the temple to the ground. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came up to him privately and he said, hey, tell us this. (laughs) When's all this going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? He tells them when it's going to happen in 70 AD, and then he also tells them the signs of his coming in the end of the age. All of that is all blended together in this discourse. He gives the setting. He talks about the beginning of these birth pains when all this is going to start. He's going to talk about the tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man, the lesson of the fig tree that says when the fig fig sprouts, you know something's happening. You don't know when it's going to bear fruit, but you know something's up. He's going to say, no one knows the date. Right in the middle of all this, he goes, I'm telling you signs, but no one knows the date. So be ready for an unexpected arrival. Work while you expectantly wait. Be prepared for his return. Use the resources for the kingdom. And in the final judgment, God sorts out the sheep and the goats. Live for him until he comes back and let God sort it all out in the end. What he's saying here is be ready for his return. You don't know when it's going to be, but be ready and be working, living on mission. Daryl Bach says, Jesus' most focused discussion of the future is found in the Olivet Discourse. This is a complicated discourse because we have it in three different versions, and it addresses two events at the same time that mirror each other. Those events are the destruction of the temple in 70 and the events tied to the end times. The destruction is seen as a precursor and a reflection of the end. Some of the things that happen in 70 AD is just a skip until very similar things happen at the end of time. Michael Wilkins says this, in the Olivet Discourse, which he calls the eschatological forecast, Jesus looks down the corridor of time and prophesies to his disciples of his return, the end of the age, and the establishment of his messianic throne. This discourse culminates Jesus' teaching on discipleship by describing how his disciples are to live each day in this age of the already not yet consummation of the kingdom in expectant preparation for his return with power. Here's what it's going to be. Be ready for him to come back. They are to expect that Jesus could return at any time, yet responsibly plan as though he were not returning for an extended period of time. Jesus said, I'm coming back, and it could happen at any time. But because we don't know the date, be ready. And what be ready means is not on a hillside waiting. It means being busy fulfilling the commission that he gave us. So here's my summary of the new Torah. If I take these five messages and say, we're supposed to teach people all that Jesus commanded us, 
Here's how I would summarize it. These five messages, live a holy life like Jesus in an upside-down kingdom, not living the values of the world, but living the values of Jesus Christ. Live a holy life like Jesus. Live on mission in spite of the suffering you're going to experience. Jesus suffered, you're going to suffer too. But live on mission in spite of that suffering. Expect opposition, but also expect victory and growth and, and the growth of the kingdom like a mustard seed, and it's spreading throughout the world. There's going to be opposition. Expect the opposition, but also be expectant of the victory. Within our communities, pursue humility and honesty and grace. And finally, be ready and on mission when he returns. If you're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ, this is what it is. Really, discipling yourself, discipling those around you, is helping them live a holy life, living on mission, um, continuing in spite of opposition, being humble and honest and forgiving and gracious, and working hard until Christ comes back. That's what disciples of Jesus Christ do. So how do I end this message? I'm going to end it exactly like I did last week. Accept the salvation that came through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's the one who inaugurates this new kingdom. He's the one who set the example for how to live. He's the one who brings salvation. And it's clear, we can't do it on our own. We have to accept his provision. And then secondly, take an active step to become a Great Commission lifestyle person. Take the commission of Christ seriously, that you're becoming a disciple and you're making disciples of people around you. You're teaching them to live this, this high standard of righteousness. You're teaching them to live on mission in spite of opposition and suffering, to take care of one another in the community and keep doing that until Christ returns. That's what disciples do. Jesus made it very clear. Here's what I'm teaching you. Now teach disciples to do that. And it's pretty simple. It's pretty clear. What would it look like if every member of Fellowship Bible Church took this seriously? And we said, yes, this is what we're going to do. We are going to pursue righteousness, live on mission. We're going to not be deterred by suffering and opposition. We're going to take care of one another, and we're going to keep busy until the end. If we were to do that, it would change this church and this community. And it's what Christ commissioned us to do. So let's get busy. Father, thank you for the teaching that you give us. Thank you for uh, Matthew collecting all of this teaching of Jesus and, and presenting it in such a, a clear way, in a compelling way. Uh, Father, I pray that it would not just be interesting and summarized, but I pray that we would apply this, that we would let this permeate our lives. Let us live this way. Let us make disciples. Let us be disciples. And let us work hard until you return. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.